Much of Jesus' ministry, particularly with his 12 disciples, his apostles, was to teach them how to deal with fear. And to sum up Jesus' teaching to them regarding fear, we can boil it all down to two words. Here's what Jesus said about fear. Fear not. Or in connection with this sermon series, if Jesus was writing this sermon series, he would phrase it this way, don't let fear be the boss of you. Now, thankfully, Jesus didn't just casually mention it in passing. Jesus left his disciples, and therefore Jesus left us with his clear teaching on the subject so that we'd be equipped to incorporate that teaching into our lives. Now, in order to benefit from Jesus' teaching, I want to start off by looking at the way that Jesus told his guys to not fear. And then we'll spend a few minutes talking about the way that Jesus showed them that they did indeed have nothing to fear. So here we go. The first lesson that we'll be looking at today took place shortly after Jesus had called the Twelve. Now, let me just give you a little sort of sidebar here. All the people who followed Jesus from place to place as he taught, all of those people were referred to as disciples, just a generic term, disciples. It comes from the Greek word methetis. Methetis means a student, a, an active learner. And then within the group of disciples, there was a smaller group of men whom Jesus chose to be his own personal students. In Hebrew, the word is talmidim. So Jesus chose these 12 men to be his talmidim. And he would draw very close to them, and then one day he would send them out to spread his message. Now, somebody who's sent out to spread a message is called an apostle. So there were Jesus' disciples the 12, but there were also the apostles. They're the ones Jesus sent out. Now, when I'm talking about the 12, I usually refer to them as disciples, although sometimes I refer to them as apostles, and it gets a little bit confusing. So I'll do my best to not confuse you, but that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the 12. I'm talking about Jesus' 12 disciples that became among the apostles. Anyway, Jesus had just finished choosing the 12 in the scripture, and he began to tell the 12 what lay ahead. So he's got all these students in front of him. He's going, okay, students, here's what you got coming. Here's what you can expect, and here's how he started. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Now, we're not a society that's very familiar with wolves or with sheep. I do understand we have coyotes in Boca. Do you think you'd know a coyote if you saw one? I, I don't know that I would. What's that scrawny dog doing? Oh, it must be a coyote. Anyway, we're not familiar with either. And, and because we're not familiar with sheep or, or wolves, we're not really familiar with the problems that can arise when those two encounter one another. So when we see this saying, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, we're not all that moved by it and we're not all that impressed by it. It doesn't really do anything for us. But Jesus' disciples understood it. They knew very well what it looked like when wolves and sheep mingled together. Suffice it to say, it's not a pretty scene. And I'm going to spare you the gory description of what it would look like, but wolves win and sheep lose when they encounter one another. All right? So anyway, right after the disciples took their jobs with Jesus, he told them what they were in for. Here's what he said is going to happen to you guys now that you're working with me. You're going to be handed over to local officials. You're going to be flogged in the synagogues. Okay, that means beaten with, with the whip. 
till your skin is off your bone and exposes blood and tissue and all that. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be betrayed. And a lot of you are going to die. He also said your children are going to rebel against you. Your children are going to turn you in one day. You're going to be hated by everybody in the community. And you're going to be persecuted. And if you want to read about any of those things, go to Matthew chapter 10, verse 17 to 23, and you can read all the horrors that were laying ahead for the disciples. So essentially, Jesus told them that following him was going to make their lives incredibly dangerous and incredibly challenging, and that was just the beginning. Things were going to get worse from there. And then after all of that, Jesus told them, so... What do you think he said? So be careful? So you guys be careful out there. Nope. That's not what he said. Here's what he said. So do not be afraid of them. And the disciples, I always imagine they were looking at Jesus like, wait, what? Like, huh? Don't be afraid of, you just told us a whole list of things we're going to be terrified of. Don't be afraid of that. By the way, all that stuff did happen to them, you know. They were all eventually arrested and beaten. Most of them were, in fact, executed. But Jesus is telling them to not be afraid. That didn't really help. It did very little to cause them to not be afraid. Indeed, when when they heard Jesus say that, they had no idea what he was talking about. It's interesting that we always get to read the scripture and we can look back. We have that 20-20 hindsight and we can look back and go, oh yeah, that's what that meant. But they didn't know. They were living it out in, in real time. Now, it would have made more sense to them if, if Jesus had told them about all those things that would happen to them once, they, once he sent them out as sheep among wolves. It would have made more sense if he said, so be afraid. Like, be on your guard. Be very careful. Well, Jesus knew it was going to take a lot more than just words telling them to not be afraid. So he decided to teach them with an example. And that's one of the great things that Jesus always did, is he always had an example. He always always taught in a way that people said, oh, wow, now I see it. So here's what he did. He took the disciples on a little trip, on a little adventure, to teach them a lesson about fear. All right, how did that happen? Well, here it is. It was Jesus' practice to travel around Judea, the land we know of as Israel, with his disciples, both sharing God's love and teaching his followers important lessons. And here's what happened on one of those journeys. So this takes place not very long after the the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon. After this sermon, after Jesus healed a leper, after Jesus healed the servant of a centurion, after Jesus had gone to Peter's house and healed Peter's mother-in-law and healed a bunch of demon-possessed people. After all of that, when Jesus took a look, he'd noticed a crowd had formed, a large crowd. And so, Jesus gave orders to the disciples to cross to the other side of the lake. And then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. So Jesus and the disciples just got done. Sermon on the Mount, whole bunch of miracles, whole bunch of healings. Now they're on the boat and they're rowing out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee. What happened next? Well, suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. Now recall that the Sea of Galilee is a large freshwater lake in Israel. 
Uh, we call it a sea, which makes us think ocean and all that sort of stuff. But it's actually just a large freshwater lake. In fact, and this is interesting, I, I looked this up, it's only about 10% as large as Lake Okeechobee, which is that large spot in the middle of Florida when you look at the map, right? Lake Okeechobee is huge. You don't realize that. But the Sea of Galilee is only 10% of that. But it's a large body of water for the region. Now, because of the geography of the Sea of Galilee, it is prone to heavy windstorms. And it's prone to sudden weather events. It's prone to rough seas. So bad weather was a very common occurrence on the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus wasn't talking about just bad weather here. It's described by Matthew as a furious storm. Now, these guys were fishermen, many of them, and they were very well acquainted with the sea, but they understood that calling it a furious storm is just not hyperbole. This was an out-of-the-ordinary, violent storm that was big enough to produce waves that would overwhelm their boat, that would engulf their boat. And now that we're talking about the boat, what about the boat? Well, the boat that they were in, it was not a cruise liner. Have you seen any of the video from, the, from this summer of all the weather events that are taking place on cruise liners? It's terrifying. Waves are coming up over and hallways are getting flooded and people are screaming. And you, Do you remember the Poseidon adventure? I just dated myself, but remember that movie? It was like that, but these guys were in a boat that wasn't all that big. The boat they were in was, was rather small. It's a very clear picture from 2,000 years ago. But anyway, <laughs> but this is what the boat really looked like. Have you ever been on a small boat that's stuck out at sea in the middle of a storm? Years ago, my grandfather took me and my two uncles. My uncles are my age. Some of you have met some of them. But he took us out drift boat fishing or deep sea fishing on what we used to call a party boat. That's what the party boats look like. That's one of them down there in Miami. Now, now I'm not a boat person. And I'm sure my experiences with these party boats growing up had something to do with the fact that I'm now not a boat person. These boats, in my opinion, are the absolute worst. They're small. They're unstable. They're crowded. And they're absolutely filthy. Well, one weekend, notwithstanding the fact that the weather report said strong wind and heavy rain is in the forecast, my grandfather decided he would take us out fishing. Well, I never wanted to go to these things, but my uncles bullied me, as they always did. And we headed out. And after we'd been drifting out in the middle of the ocean for a few hours, it was pitch black at night. It was about 10 o'clock at night. That's when the weather turned. The wind started blowing. 35 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour. The waves are getting higher and higher. They're crashing over the bow. The boat's just rocking up and down. There's lightning. There's thunder. We're getting just, it's just getting worse and worse. And then the rain started. You know the Florida rain that you get with those really heavy drops? You just, it just plop, plop, plop like that. Well, the rain just started to pelt the boat with those Florida heavy raindrops. So we're doing this and we're doing that and the rain's coming down on us and then the vomit-o-rama. <laughs> Patent pending. That's when it began. There were about 50 people on this boat and there were about 50 heads hanging over the edge, barfing into the water. 
maybe 48, because my two uncles, they had stomachs of cast iron. They're smoking their cigars, and they're eating their Hebrew national salami, and they're going, you want some? But I was terrified. Now, now, picturing that is nothing like the images of this story about Jesus and the apostles that you've heard before. You've possibly seen it in a cartoon or in a flannel graph if you're that old or anything like that. Where it's just, oh, Jesus, he looks so good, doesn't he? He always looks so good like he's just getting ready to go surfing. And he just looked great and they're all smiling and they're out on this boat. And that's not how they looked. When we were on that boat in the storm, we were all wet and our hair was all plastered to our face and we were chilled and we were uncomfortable and we were nauseous and we were thinking, we're not going to make it. We're going to die right here. For me, I had just enough energy to lie down on this plywood board that was up on the bulkhead where they had been cutting up the bait fish, the mullet and the ballyhoo and there's fish guts and fish stink everywhere and I'm lying down in the middle of all this just trying like not to die and everybody's screaming at each other and everybody's kind of scrambling around. I'm sure people were praying. I wasn't a Christian. I didn't even think about praying at the time but there they were. So it was just a mess out there. So if you can picture what a mess it would be to be in the water in the middle of this storm, now go back to the Bible. A furious storm popped up in that tiny little boat that Jesus and the disciples were on. And what was happening with Jesus? Well, Jesus was sleeping. I'm not sure how Jesus slept through all of this. Maybe he was nauseous too and he was lying down in the middle of the boat for the same reason I was lying down on the party boat. But Jesus was asleep. So the disciples went and woke him. Now, if you're trying to picture this, they probably didn't wake him like, like this, like, Jesus, wake up, little buddy. Come on, we've got to get moving. That's not how they woke him up. They didn't wake him up like you'd wake your kids up from a nap or to go to Disney on a Saturday morning or anything like that. No, it's more like they were a bit excited. And they said to Jesus, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. So we get the picture that Jesus probably, I don't know, he's sleeping, kind of pushed himself up a little bit from the, from the pillow. And he said, you of little faith. Seems like the boss is a bit irritated by this. He's trying to sleep. And then he followed up this you of little faith with a very strange question given the circumstance. Here's what he said. Why are you so afraid? By the way, this sentence is very good evidence of the accuracy of the events recorded in the Bible. Matthew was writing about this. He was there. He was an eyewitness. And, and he wrote about this pretty embarrassing response. Why, why are you so afraid? I mean, if, if Matthew wanted to seem like a spiritual giant or a hero of God, he could have changed the story. He could have said, I was the only one who was brave enough and everybody else was afraid. He didn't do that. He could have painted all the disciples in a favorable light, but that's not what he did. Matthew was thinking, we're scared for our lives. That's why we're afraid. And who could fault them? But this isn't simply a story to show how Jesus had power over nature. Remember, he was teaching them a lesson about fear. And so I just said that in that moment, they woke Jesus up and he kind of pushed himself up. Huh? What? Huh? How do I know that? Because look, then he got up. He didn't get up and say, ye of little faith. He was still lying down. 
He was still like, leave me alone. I'm going back to sleep. Do you do that? You wake up in the middle of the night and you, you like, you maybe go to the bathroom or something. And you come back and you go, I could go back to sleep. I think I'll do that. Maybe he wanted to do that. Anyway, though, he got up, and when he finally got up, without a hint of panic in his voice, which makes sense, because, you know, God doesn't panic, so Jesus then, what did he do? He rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. He went, stop! Whoosh, calm. Now, we panic because we look to the future, and we react based upon things that we've already seen and already experienced, but God doesn't panic. Because the future doesn't apply to God. God created time. And God exists outside of time. God already knows what lies ahead. So after Jesus calmed the storm, the apostles asked a fantastic question. Here's what they asked. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. What kind of man is this indeed? What kind of man is this who has the authority to control the physical world? Mark would tell the same story in his gospel, and he added in Mark 4.41, the disciples were terrified. In the original Greek, the translation comes back to, they feared a great fear. When you repeat something in the scripture, you're giving it emphasis. And so when you repeat the word fear, they feared a great fear. It just emphasizes how, how afraid, how terrified they were. And what was it they were terrified about? It wasn't necessarily the storm. The storm was over. It was a sudden realization of whose presence they were in. It was the realization of what Jesus was capable of. This guy could stop a raging storm with just his voice. But it only took a second before their confidence in what Jesus could do overtook their fear of what was happening to them. And that was the lesson that Jesus was trying to teach them. You don't have to let fear be the boss of you. Jesus is more effective and more powerful than fear. That's a great lesson for the disciples. Well, then a few days later, Jesus addressed the situation which brings us back to where we started. Jesus was about to send the apostles out as sheep among wolves to, pro pro to proclaim the message of the gospel, to do whatever it took. He gave them authority to heal the sick, some to raise the dead, to cleanse the lepers, to drive out demons, to draw people to Jesus. He told the people they would face danger, that they'd face a threat to their very lives, and he told them to be on their guard, but he also told them to not be afraid of those people who were harming them. Specifically, Jesus told them, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And it's in this moment that Jesus emphasized one of the core beliefs we hold as Jesus' followers. We are much, much more than our physical bodies. We are made up of our physical bodies and our spiritual souls, and our souls are eternal. So Jesus was telling them, don't be afraid of anyone who, all they can do to you is kill your body. If you're going to fear someone, fear God. If you're going to fear someone or something, if you're going to let someone or something guide your heart or guide your emotions, let it be the one that can destroy both body and soul in hell. It's as if by hearkening back to his admonition to them 
on the boat during the storm. Jesus is reminding them, hey guys, remember how you all acted on the, on the boat out there? Remember how afraid you were? Well, you were afraid of the wrong thing. You were fearing the storm. You were afraid that the storm would take your life. And I showed you that that is not the thing to be afraid of. You need to spend a lot less time focusing on the things that are going on around you and start spending a lot more time focusing on me. And then to drive his point home, Jesus said this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus was telling them, not only does God care about nature, which he also created, and not only is he aware of the comings and goings of essentially worthless birds, God cares about you. In fact, God cares so much about you. He cares so much more about you than he does the little birds that, that he knows how many hairs you have on your head. You don't even know how many hairs you have on your head. And don't you shaved head guys tell me I do, zero, because you still have follicles. And he did all this to say, don't be afraid. You're worth much more than these little birds. Our God considers you exceptionally valuable. Because our God is a personal God who knows your circumstances, who knows your situation. Our God knows what's going on with us, and our God cares for us. And no matter what you're going through, even if it's overwhelming you with fear, you can rest, and you can rest assured knowing that God is aware of it and is to be trusted to work things out for his good and for the good of his people. There is nothing else that we need to know. Now with that, Jesus took the apostles on another adventure to teach them another lesson. You're probably familiar with this story too. It's found in Matthew chapter 14. So after having taught them many things and shared with them many parables, Jesus was back out on the water where he retreated to a solitary place. But as always, the crowds followed him. And when Jesus landed... Because he had compassion for the people, he couldn't ignore them. So he went out and he began to heal the sick among them. But they stayed out a long, long time. And they were out there so long that the sun began to set. And the disciples suggested to Jesus that he begin to wrap it up. And, you know, when you preach, there's a lot of times guys in the back of the, you know, back of the room going, all right, let's wrap it up. You're running along here. Okay, so that's what Jesus is doing. They're saying, okay, okay, boss, wrap it up. Everybody's got to go out. Everybody's got to go get a bite to eat at one of the local eateries. I'm sure they were thinking Chick-fil-A or something. Here's what they said. they said. They said, Jesus, this is a remote place and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and, and buy themselves some food. But Jesus' idea wasn't Chick-fil-A. Instead, Jesus said this, verse 16, they don't need to go anywhere. You give them something to eat. You guys feed them. To which the disciples responded, say, what? We, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. In other words, they said, boss, do you see how many people there are here? You know how much it's going to cost to feed all these people? And where are we supposed to get all that food before the sun goes down and then prepare it and put it together so we can feed? It can't be done. 
All we could muster up is, is five loaves of bread. And we're not talking like big, fluffy loaves of white bread, you know, Wonder Bread with the polka dot thing. We're talking about small peasant loaves of bread, very grainy, kind of round loaves, and two fish, probably smoked or salted. They're probably preserved in one way or another. You can walk around with just raw fish in your basket. You know, you're eating sushi. And I have to imagine at this moment, Jesus went, oh, you guys, seriously? You guys don't get it. We have to do this again? I imagine he was so frustrated oftentimes with them. So Jesus said, bring the food to me. And he prayed over the food. What's a prayer sound like? We pray at every communion. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who's given us the bread from the earth. That's the prayer over the bread before you eat. And then he said to his disciples, start handing this out. And they were amazed at what just happened in their midst because the food fed everybody. Jesus had performed another miracle in their midst. Just a minute before, they didn't think it could be done. But there they were, watching a massive crowd. It was 5,000 men. Add to it women and children who were there. You're talking about 10,000 plus people eating their fill and leaving baskets of leftovers. But we don't know what they said. The scripture doesn't tell us anything that they said. So what we do know is this. Immediately after this happened, immediately, Jesus, check the word, made. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So, let's look at some of the words. Immediately, as soon as it dawned on everybody what had just happened, there was, there was this miracle, 5,000 men, 10 to 15,000 people were just miraculously fed. Immediately, Jesus made the 12 get into the boat. The Greek word for made is the word enon kasson. Enon kasson. Now, enon kasson means Jesus forced them into the boat. He coerced them to get into the boat. He didn't just say, hey, you guys want to get in the boat? He said, get in the boat. He didn't want the guys sticking around to take a bow. Oh, yeah, feeding 10,000 people? Yeah, part of that. Yeah, Jesus and I, we're pretty tight, you know. I'll be doing autographs, selling merch over there. No worries. He said, get in the boat. He didn't want them getting a swelled head about, oh, I get to live and exist in the proximity of the miracle man. And anyway, he had to force him into the boat because remember how the last boat trip went? Not good. Remember the storm? Jesus made them get into the boat. And he said, cross to the other side and I'll meet you over there. And I have to imagine they weren't too keen on trying another night crossing, this time without the guy who saved them on the boat. But in any case, Jesus saw them launch into the water. He went back to the crowd. He dismissed the gathered crowd. And then he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And the disciples, meanwhile, were getting further and further and further away from land. And for a long time, the disciples rode toward the other side where they expected they would see Jesus, rendezvous with Jesus. And then came the wind. Not again. Verse 24, the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against us. They're going into the wind, Right? You know Bob Seger's song, Against the Wind? I think that's what this is written about. And then after hours and hours of rowing all throughout the night, how do we know? Because shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. 
But after all that they'd seen since their last boat adventure, this time they weren't afraid. This time they did not let their fear boss them around. This time as faithful men of God, they saw Jesus walking to them on the water and they said to themselves, Fellas, my heavens, look, tis the Lord. Is that what they said? No, that's not what they said. This time again, they thoroughly embarrassed themselves. Just like they'd done the last time they'd experienced a storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Look what the verse says. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on the lake, they were terrified. Eek! It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. These guys never get it. Now, if somebody was writing a story about a revered or respected person, they're not going to invent stories like this that make them look bad. Most certainly, if this was a made-up story, they would not have included this part in there. But as it turns out, the disciples were just as afraid and doubted Jesus just as much as everybody else, even though Jesus had told them repeatedly, fear not. So they saw Jesus out there on the water, and they totally freaked out. And you know what Jesus said to them next? He said, knock it off. Take courage. Buck up. It is I. Don't be afraid. And in his mind, he's thinking, seriously, lads? How many times are we going to have to do this? I preach to you. I perform miracles in front of you. I taught you over and over and over and over again. Now stop being so afraid. As long as I'm with you, you have nothing to fear. And even if you do have something to fear, you don't have to let fear become the boss of you. Now, of course, as we're all aware, it didn't stick. But as we've seen before, we can look to this as an encouragement. Because we have our fears, and we might feel bad about it, but the disciples feared too. And they feared right up until the very end. At the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. The disciples were following him. He just raised Lazarus from the dead, and the disciples were thinking, yes, this is the day we waited for. And they arrived in Jerusalem, and they were welcomed by adoring crowds, chanting Jesus' name, chanting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they spent that week leading up to Pass Passover festival in Jerusalem, and they got together for the Passover meal. And Jesus told them that he was, on that evening, inaugurating a brand new covenant, a brand new relationship between God and man as the Old Testament prophets had prophesied. And the disciples were again thinking, this is it, baby. This is, what, this is all, all the marbles right here. Three years, here we go. He's been telling us this is coming for three years, that he's starting a brand new movement. He told us that nothing would stop it. They were probably thinking, we're so glad that we stuck it out with this guy. And then Jesus told them he's going to leave them with a new law and a new commandment. This is what they've been waiting for. This is the moment their parents and their parents' parents and their parents' parents' parents had told them about. The Romans were going to be out. They must have been so excited. Their joy must have been palpable. But what happened? Later that night, Jesus was arrested. And what did the disciples do? They freaked out again. They hid. They lied. They denied. And then they watched the Romans drag their Lord to the hill called Golgotha, the skull, where they watched him be crucified. And when they were sure Jesus was dead, they acted as if they never knew him at all. 
They'd been so excited, but it was over. Whatever Jesus had said about himself apparently wasn't true. He was gone. They couldn't tell his stories anymore because without Jesus, the stories rang hollow. On the boat, they were convinced that Jesus had come from God. What kind of man is this? But after the crucifixion, well, they reasoned, certainly the Romans wouldn't have been able to kill God's Messiah. We must have been wrong. Everything we'd come to believe about Jesus, it must have been wrong. But then they looked into an empty tomb. And then they met their friend who was very much alive. And they were all back in business. The resurrection had confirmed all of the things that Jesus said and did and taught. Everything after that made sense, especially what Jesus had said about fear. Because you see, for us, we think about the resurrection once a year at Easter. But for them, the resurrection formed the basis of everything that they believed. The resurrection was their source of confidence. The resurrection was their source of boldness and the source of their strength. Jesus' resurrection validated everything he taught, particularly what he said about fear. For the disciples and all of Jesus' followers, the world would continue to be a scary place, but they didn't have to be afraid because they finally understood the lesson of their boat adventures. They finally understood what it meant when Jesus said, Fear not, for I am with you. They feared not, and they came out of hiding. And they willingly faced down the same people who had Jesus arrested, beaten, and crucified. And they went on to change the world. Fear not changed the world. A generation of men and women, the first generations of Christians, lost their fear of death. And when someone has lost their fear of death, it is very difficult to threaten them after that. Now fast forward to the second century and the Roman Greek physician, surgeon, philosopher Claudius Galenus. Now it was during the reign of Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius that Galenus had the opportunity to go into the Colosseum and examine the bodies of Christians who were dying as a result of the games they were doing in the Colosseum, the, the gladiators and the murderers and all that stuff. In those days, interestingly, it was illegal for a doctor to examine a body once a person was dead. They didn't permit autopsies. So they were unable to learn what the body looked like. They couldn't cut open bodies. They couldn't figure out how the body worked. But during that time, Galenus and the other doctors would wait on the sidelines of the arena following an event. Once they took the wild animals out, the tigers and the lions and the elephants and stuff, once they're out, the doctors were able to go in and examine the dying bodies. And this gave Galenus a perspective that nobody else had, a very unique perspective on the Christian victims of the inhumane Roman practices that took place in the Colosseum. And here's what Galenus said about the Christians he examined. For fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witness in them and the Christians every day. Rank-and-file Christians dying in the Colosseum and they were unafraid of death. And that was all due to the resurrection of Jesus. Because when you worship someone who has mastered life and conquered death, when that person says to you, fear not, you realize that you can indeed fear not. Not because there's nothing to be afraid of, but because you've directed your attention and your affection to the one who deserves all your trust, all your reverence, and all your fear.
All right, let's wrap this up. While fear is a permanent part of the human experience, none of us want fear to be the boss of us. Now remember, Peter was on the boat. He was on both of those failed boat rides. Peter denied after that Passover meal that he even knew Jesus. Peter did everything wrong. Peter panicked at Jesus' arrest. But that Peter, that very same Peter, who lied when questioned, who was intimidated by that middle school girl, that Peter, years after the resurrection, wrote a letter to first century Christians. He wrote a letter to people who, like us, believed but had not seen Jesus. And here's what Peter said to those people. Cast all your fear, all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Literally, transfer all of your worry, transfer all of your fretting, transfer all of your anxiety, transfer all of your fears to him because he cares for you. Now, Peter knew what he was talking about. Peter eventually died in Nero's Rome. But he was confident that the promise that Jesus made him, as well as all the others, was a promise that Jesus has made you and me as well. Peter knew that King David had been right when he wrote, even though I walk through the darkest valley, through the valley of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. In other words, and let's say this together, fear, you are not the boss of me. We already have a boss who conquered life and conquered death. We have a boss who is who he said he was. He is worthy of our fellowship, and he is worthy of our worship. Because, guys, the life of Jesus is an invitation and a promise. It's an invitation to follow Jesus, and it's a promise that you can follow without fear. Follow me, and fear not. Fear not even when there's something to be afraid of because I am with you and I care for you. Fear not. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for creating us the way that you've created us, for giving us enough fear to protect us so that we can continue on this mission, but not so much fear that we have to give in to it, that we lose sight of who you are, the God who loves us, the God who saves, and the God who promised to never leave us. God, as we head from here today, Help us to fear not. Help us when we feel that horrible fear rising up inside of us. Help us to say, no fear. You're not the boss of me. My Savior lives. My Savior's with me. I have nothing to fear. God, we thank you, we love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.